And I can announce that you can continue those conversations after the service today over a cup of tea or coffee. So morning tea is back, so that's very exciting. Thank you to the Rathkins who've done that today. Uh, But we do have to ask that you let them serve you uh, and not try and do self-service for teas and coffees. So uh, we thank you everyone for that. And uh, just while we're touching on those sort of restrictions and things, I've had a request from a few people in the church that I don't wear the mask while I'm preaching because uh, they found it harder to uh, follow me. So, so long as everybody else is comfortable with that, then I'll uh, leave that one off uh, for the sermon time. Before we get into God's word this morning, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for your amazing grace that we've sung about this morning. We thank you that our hope is not in ourselves, not I, but Christ in me. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word. And we thank you that in your word we find wisdom for every day of our lives. That in your word we find your voice speaking to us telling us of your love for us, of what you've done for us, of what, of who you are and how incredible are the things that you've done, but how close you are to us and how immense is your grace towards us. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the next few weeks, I want to do something just a little bit different. Uh, I wanted to spend some time leading into, the, into Christmas, just really getting to the heart of the gospel message. And instead of going to a particular book of the Bible, I thought it might be interesting to preach through a song that we all know very well, a song that's been a huge part of, um, of Christian worship for hundreds of years now. And it's, it's not all that dissimilar to looking at a psalm from the Bible, but to think, to, to get straight to the heart of the gospel, I wanted to spend a few weeks thinking about the amazing grace of God and what it is that we sing when we sing to one another. Because the songs that we sing in church are not just a part of our worship of God. If it were, we could all easily sing our songs to God at home and worship him at home and that would be church but in his wisdom God decided that it would be good that we who have been made a family because of what Jesus has done for us that we'd join together and that we'd sing songs as part of that and as we do it 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 is our worship to God we sing these songs but it's not just that it's also a part of our encouraging for one another a part of our teaching one another. Paul wrote in Colossians 3 verse 16, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And so although my general uh, way of preaching is that uh, I like to preach through a book of the Bible and spend a time in a series in a book of the Bible, and I think that's a really good way to preach because it means that I don't get to just talk about the things I want to talk about every week, but it's, it's 
you know, you go through the book of the Bible and what comes up, what comes up, and you need to deal with it and address it. And I have to talk about topics that if it was just left up to me, I might just leave for another easier day. So that's what I normally do. But for this time, I thought it would be good for us to look at the heart of the gospel and to think about the things that we sing and what it is that we're proclaiming to one another and teaching one another and letting the word of Christ dwell richly among one another as we sing these things. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What is grace? And why do we in churches bang on so much about it? Now, we've got churches named for it. The Grace Such and Such Church. or the you know, I, I, my, my brother-in-law for a number of years was in the, the Grace Bible Church. And there's a bunch of them out there. We named our children for it. How many children in the churches have, you know, I'm sure all of us has come across a grace or a, you know, somebody with a grace as a middle name in our, in our times in the churches. We say grace before a meal. Uh, it might be you know, a formulaic one or it might just be, dear God, thanks for the food, amen. But we call it grace. And it's not just modern Christians that make a big thing about grace. It's interesting that Throughout the, the Old Testament times and even the times of Jesus, the common greeting that, that Jewish people would give to one another was shalom, peace, peace to you. But in all of the letters of the New Testament, something's been added to that formula when Paul greets the churches or Peter greets the churches. Grace and peace to you. Grace is a huge part of what Jesus came to teach us about. Now, don't get me wrong, grace existed in the Old Testament. Sometimes we get this idea that the Old Testament was all law and the New Testament was all grace. But there's always been grace. God has always been a gracious God. It was Abraham was chosen by grace because of his faith. The people of Israel were rescued from Egypt by grace. It wasn't because they followed the law. The law came only after God had saved them by his grace. But Jesus came to teach us so much more about grace. Grace. Grace is something that by definition cannot be earned. Grace is a gift given to somebody that you know can't pay you back. Grace is that parent who chooses to respond to the teenager's outburst of rebellion with love rather than with equal anger. Grace is at the heart of the gospel message. And the passage I've chosen to look at this morning that I think really encapsulates what Jesus taught us about grace is from John seven fifty three to 8, 11. For anyone who like to follow along in their Bibles. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. 
The teachers of the law and the Pharisees uh, brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. In just a few short verses, we see what Jesus understood grace to be. This woman was brought before him fully guilty as far as the law was concerned. What defence could she offer? She'd been caught in the act of adultery. Her guilt was clear. And the law says that the, in response to that guilt, the right punishment was death. What could she say or do to make things right? To undo the thing that she had done? What could she do to say, well, actually, you know, you don't have to follow through on what the law says. I don't deserve to be put to death. What argument could she make? None. Now, each and every one of us in this place, we might, you might believe in God. You might believe in the crucifixion and the resurrection. But until you understand grace, you don't really fully understand the gospel. There is no real good news. To understand grace, we need to understand the next line of the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Why is it that the second line of one of the most popular songs in Christian history gets everybody who sings it to call themselves a wretch? I remember watching a, um, a Melbourne comedy festival things, thing years ago and the uh, Irish comedian, guy by the name of Danny Boy, uh, was doing his whole skit. And as part of that, he was uh, talking about his experience of churches and how he just didn't understand churches because each and every song said was all about how God is good and I am uh, excrement. Uh, a, sl a slightly different word for that. <laughs> but um, is there some truth to that, given that 
One of our most popular songs, like I said, makes us call ourselves a wretch. Is it all about putting ourselves down? Do you have to, be a, do you have, to have low self-esteem to be a Christian? A wretch like me. Well, I think one thing that I get out of the passage that I've read out for us this morning, it's not about self-hatred. It's not about self-loathing. But it is about honesty. It's about realising that we are that woman dragged before a crowd of angry people with nothing that we can say to get our way out of it. Nothing that we can do to undo the wrong things that we have done. Now, not, of course, not every person in this room is literally an adulterer like she was. But throughout a lot of the Old Testament, when God's people rejected him, when they chose that they were going to go their own way rather than doing what God had called them to do, despite the covenant, the promises they had made with him, and the example God used to show them how, you know, what their behaviour really was, was he said, I am your husband and you're cheating on me. You're going off after all of these other gods, after all of these other things. Sin is about a rejection of God, about putting something else in his place of authority over us. He is a good God. Sometimes we struggle at that word authority. We don't think anybody should have authority over us. But a good father who loves you, for him to have authority over you is not a burden. But each and every one of us in our own way have rejected him, have cheated on God and gone our own way. And there is no legal reason why God should forgive us. There is no legal reason why God should love us. And there's nothing that we can ever do to repay the wrong that we've done, the ways we've hurt others, maybe even sometimes the ways we've hurt ourselves, the ways that we've rejected God, our Creator. And every sin is in effect, in effect against our Creator, who made us for good. And yet we've chosen to reject Him. There's nothing we can do to make it right. But He loves us regardless. And that, that is grace. And I think all of us have a time in our lives where we find ourselves in the dirt, dragged before the crowd like that woman was. Not, again, necessarily literally, but a time where we realise, I am a wretch. Despite all of my best efforts, I've kind of made a mess of things. I've hurt the people that I love. I've gone my own way, and it hasn't panned out the way that I thought that it would. And we come to times in our lives where there's voices of condemnation all around. And sometimes voices of condemnation within. You're no good. 
You can't get anything right. You always sin and you always choose the selfish way. Jesus came to this woman and he said, where are those that condemn you? They'd come, they'd done their best, they'd argued for her to be put to death. And he told them, let those who have no sin throw the first stone. And those people had all gone. The voices of condemnation were all gone. And Jesus comes near and says, neither do I condemn you. I think there's an incredible freedom in knowing that you're a wretch. It was like Amy spoke about just last week about all of our efforts and striving to live up to these standards of perfection that we set for ourselves. And not only do we not meet them, but we just burn ourselves so hard in in trying. And knowing that we're wretched, to use the word from the hymn, knowing that we can't do it in our own strength, doesn't mean we need to have a low self-esteem. But it means that we find our esteem in the one who loves us. The one who paid a high price for us. The woman who Jesus forgave may not have ever known what it was that her forgiveness cost. Because she had sinned. She had broken somebody's trust. We don't know whether she was married and had broken her husband's trust or if she was committing adultery with with a man who was married and betrayed the wife's trust. But she had sinned. She had done wrong. She'd hurt people. And like I said, there was no legal reason for her to be forgiven. And for Jesus to just say, oh, that's okay, people who have done bad things don't, you know, don't need to be punished. It'll just work out in the end. There would be no justice in that. That would mean anybody could do anything that they wanted in this world without there being any justice for it. Jesus was able to forgive the woman's sin because he was going to pay for it. Somebody has to pay the price for sin. And the Bible teaches us that the wages of sin is death. The price for sin is death. And for there to be justice, that price needs to be paid. But what that woman might not have known when Jesus came close to her and said, neither do I condemn you, was it was because he was planning to pay that price in her place. Jesus Christ came to give his life to be a ransom for sinners. He went to the cross on Calvary not because Roman justice had gone astray, not because his whole plan of becoming the Messiah had somehow gone horribly wrong, 
but because that was the plan from the beginning. There was only one way that that price could be paid. And that was that the sinless, perfect son of God give his life. Nobody else can give their life uh, to save somebody else. I can't give my life to save somebody in here uh, to pay the price of their sin because I got the price of my own sin to pay for. I, you know, and, and that would be all that I could pay for. But Jesus, who did not sin and who was in very nature God, he was able to pay the price that our sins deserved. When we realise that, it frees us from having to find our esteem in ourselves and in our efforts and in the things that we do. And instead we find our esteem in the fact that the one who created us considered it worth dying so that we could be forgiven. And the best part is, he doesn't leave us in the dirt where he found us. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. He reaches to us in our wretchedness, in our worst moments. But he doesn't leave us there. We were lost, now we're found. We were blind. Now we see. He tells the woman after the end of his, this whole story, go and leave your life of sin. Go and sin no more. And we know from the context that these words were not spoken in condemnation, but instead in incredible grace. One thing we sometimes might not realise about this story is that by Jesus' own rules, he could have thrown the first stone. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. He could have. But he didn't. But Jesus' final line does remind us that he doesn't endorse sin. Jesus is not saying, just go out and do whatever you want. Eat, drink and be merry and party all the time. In large part because that life is not good for us. Because the things that God calls us not to do are not good for us. And the way that he calls us to live is what is best for us and what is best for the society around us. And so Jesus doesn't endorse her sin. If he was endorsing the sin, it wouldn't be grace. He wouldn't be showing her forgiveness that she didn't deserve. But Jesus calls us out of our wretchedness, huddled in the dirt, to a new life following him. We were lost, but now are found. We were blind, unable to see or understand anything of God. But now we see. Jesus calls us to something better. A freedom from the constraint of being stuck in sin. Calls us to a life in his love. But we do need to understand that as long as we're in this world, we're not ever perfectly out of the dirt. Some part of our wretchedness exists for all of this life. 
We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus calls us out of that to something better, to something that will be better for us. And if we trust him, we follow him. But we'll, we'll stuff it up. We'll stumble. We'll get it wrong sometimes. But when we fall short, his grace reaches down and picks us up and dusts us off again. The amazing thing about his grace is not just how much he loved us, although it is that. Not just the price that he paid on the cross. The amazing thing is that his grace is there for us time and time again. Forgive us not seven times, but 70 times seven. As many times as we fall down, when we come to him, he shows us grace. So where are your accusers? Where are those that condemn? Jesus doesn't condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just amazing, life-changing grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the love that you've shown us that we could never deserve. We might not have committed adultery. And if we felt inclined to argue the point, we might say, oh, the things that we've done wrong are less than that. But all of us have gone astray. All of us have hurt people and rejected you. All of us are wretches, unable to live a good life perfectly. And yet you reached down to us. While we were still your enemies, you died for us. You show us a love that we can never deserve. And God, help us to live a life that is just full of love for you because of the way that you have loved us. But keep us from the trap of ever trying to pay you back. There is nothing we can do to pay off our sins, which is why we must trust in your amazing grace. And Lord, when we stumble and we fall, and we begin to feel all that wretchedness, and like surely you couldn't love us after we keep letting you down. Help us to remember that your grace comes to us every time we put our trust in you. That you pick us up again. You forgive us. And you call us to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I probably don't have to tell you what our hymn that we're closing with will be.